what Dave's point was was true, but dishonest and misleading. And I'm not saying that Dave is dishonest. I'm not besmirching his name. I'm just I'm telling you that I he told me firsthand who does it that he's he, I got the idea from him. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, if we're going to push blame on anybody, we're yeah, going to push yeah. it on the guy that can't defend himself anymore. Oh, <laughs> okay. That's a good counter. That's a good counter. <laughs> this is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen, and I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. The bourbon boom has sparked intense interest in America's native spirit, but it's also raised a lot of complex questions for longtime aficionados like, you know, the ones that are listening to this show. With so many new releases and labeling tactics, it can be difficult to discern what defines a quality bourbon. Producers start walking a fine line between innovation and tradition, while consumers start to struggle to separate marketing hype from honest craftsmanship. And to help me dive into a bunch of topics, I've invited Chris Hart to be on the show. He's the co-creator of The Prideful Goat, an organizer for the Houston Whiskey Social, a contributing member of the Houston Bourbon Society, and a former guest on the show. We talk about balancing innovation with integrity, because there are signs of disenchanting consumers in an increasingly crowded market. We touch on more fun including TTB loopholes that I'm sure you're going to find interesting as well. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Roger Wolfram, who asks, Do you remember the first sample that was given to you to review? Was it a confirmation moment to you? Well, 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 well. So this is a great question. I really do have to think about it, and I'll be dating myself a little bit. But 2005 is when I started writing about food. I came home from Iraq, and the only job I could get was as a food editor for this uh, trade magazine called Fast Casual Magazine. It was for a company called NetWorld Alliance. And in fact, that place would be quite quite the talent maker. Steve Coombs worked there, and Kevin Gibson's worked there. And we all work in some way, shape, or form in the bourbon world right now. So you have, at this place, you had three writers covering pizza and the fast food restaurants and fast casual restaurants. And we were we were all kind of cutting our teeth in this industry. Well, except for Steve. Steve was a veteran at this point. And we were all writing about um, food. And when you write about food, you eventually write about alcohol. I would write about wine before I'd write about bourbon. But after this job, I kind of realized I needed to work on myself, and that was one of the reasons why I broke away from full-time employment and pursued a freelance career so I could get in therapy and really focus on myself post-Iraq. You know, I've talked about this a lot, and I'm very proud of, of that effort. And in 2006, I actually wrote my first bourbon article for a magazine called Successful Meetings. I wrote this in the uh, like November, December of 2006. It is published about five, six months later. So that was really my moment of you know dipping my toe into bourbon. Now I loved bourbon up until this point, but. I was not getting samples uh, when I was just covering things like the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, when I was covering the business of bourbon. I didn't start getting samples until I started writing for a magazine called Tasting Panel. I started writing for Tasting Panel in 2007, and that would be somewhere along you know, the fall of 2007 is when I started writing for them. And the first sample that I got was Knob Creek. So Knob Creek was sent to me by Fred No, and I would later sit down with him and talk to him and get an idea of what his family was all about. And, you know, I come to think of it, I had to think about it uh, after you sent this question, but it was it was Knob Creek that was my first sample. But no, I didn't I didn't really feel anything about it. I, I actually kind of, if anything, I felt the opposite. I felt like, oh, uh, trying to trying to get me to say something nice by sending me a free sample. Oh, I'll show you. But I would soon learn and would get hundreds and thousands of packages, 
in the coming years, I would soon learn that's just part of the business. These, uh, When I covered wine, I got probably five times the amount of samples that I do in spirits. So I get a lot now. I get anywhere between 800 and 2,000 samples a year to taste. Sometimes I review them. Sometimes I do not. Uh, sometimes they're in my competition. Sometimes they are not. But, you know, in wine, winemakers would have like 15 vintages they would send me. And there would be hundreds of winemakers around the world sending me product. And that was quite the change of pace. But I always loved always loved it when I got the full bottles versus the sample bottles. Like in 2008, I mean, I, I was getting full bottles of all the limited edition releases with the exception of Pappy. I didn't get full bottles of Pappy. But that started changing. You know, they started changing from full bottles to sample sample bottles like 50 mLs around 2012. And uh, John Hansel has a, has a tweet out there somewhere talking about that. But of course, John was much more veteran than me at that point. But, but so that was a great question. Thank you for letting me go down memory lane for a second there, Roger. But I love what I do. I'm honored to be able to review whiskeys and uh, tell the history of bourbon. And so you helped me kind of relive some uh, some wonderful moments in my life. So thank you for that, Roger. But that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. If you'd like to be like Roger, hit me up on my website, which is fredminnick.com. Click the contact button, send me your question. And if I like it, I'll read it on the air. Until next week, cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky. And you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. And they're off for another Get 270-2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 000 Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com. And you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back, everybody. It's another episode of Bourbon Pursuit. It's the official podcast of bourbon. Today, I've got a friend of the show. He's been on before, and I've been on his show before, but... We're going to open this up to a wide variety of conversation because that's the way that his brain works. It's like a spaghetti of bourbon, random trivia and news and just things that are happening. And so we're going to dive into a lot of that stuff. But I've had an opportunity to to know our guest for quite a few years now. And he's been a good friend of the show, a good friend of me, a good friend of the industry as well. He's continually pushing the envelope, spreading a bunch of great information out there through all of his groups that he's in. So I think I've probably pumped his head up enough and his ego. So let's go ahead and introduce him. So today on the show, we have Christopher Hart. He is the co-creator of the Prideful Goat, but also one of the people behind the Houston Whiskey Social and the one that's always putting out those fun little tidbits on the Houston Bourbon Society web or Facebook group as well. It's That's where you live. So Chris, welcome back to the show. 
Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I, uh, <laughs> it's funny. You say uh, he's got all this interesting, good information. I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to give myself that much credit because, uh, man, there's been, you know, between myself and Wade, it feels like there's a bourbon argument happening. Uh, <laughs> well, Wade is very good at starting those. It's you all like, this is what I love about you all is that you have essentially memorized the entire TTB BAM or like the the manual that anybody that doesn't know. And so when anybody has a question or somebody says, oh, I love this bourbon. And then it says finished in X, Y, Z. You want you two to be the first people that point out and be like, by the way, that's that's not bourbon. <laughs> well, I, I, I wouldn't say that, which by the way, I have, it's been a while since I've had one of your one of your uh, offerings and this is really good. I appreciate really, really it. Good. He's drinking uh, just the Pursuit United flagship right there. Yeah, I wouldn't. Wade's more of the. I forget. Can we cuss on this show? Sure. Yeah, but Wade's more of the jerk. <laughs> that's that's uh, a cuss. Yeah, <laughs> let it rip, man. Uh, but uh, yes, there there tends to be a lot of education that happens on these boards. The, the problem is, is there tends to be a lot of misinformation that happens on these boards. <clears throat> so essentially, I mean, dude, I remember a few years back. It was the thing to say, especially if you were in a Louisville group or a Kentucky group, that my neighbor was a master distiller, works at Beam, as the authority on any particular subject. So at the very least, you know, there's a lot of tribal knowledge that's bullshit. And so the only way you're going to learn and grow in this hobby, besides knowing when allocated... I, do you remember when the website at Sazerac was like no one knew about it? Oh, yeah. yeah and now there's like all these... All pe- the information oh, and absolutely. everything out there and all the history of the brands and every release and all this other kind of stuff. And that just, it didn't exist at one point. But well, I, what I was specifically referring to was the Barrel Select website. Oh, so, SBS. Yes. Gotcha. When you were trying to get the the single barrel picks, if you were one, one of those groups that knew about it, it was like the su- super top... You were, oh, how, you know... Wait. I remember the first year I got a barrel and I was like, oh, that was easy. Oh. And then after that, it was never. Yeah. Safe. Now you yeah. need like freaking, uh, you know, multi gigabit speed for, <laughs> on uh, uh, what do you call it? Fiber optic just to get in. On, and you're still going to not get. I mean, picked. to be honest, I tried. I it ended up like the first year it went like that. I said, well, let me go ahead and increase my chances. So I go into AWS or Amazon Web Services and I spin up like 30 different virtual machines in the cloud, all with trying to just access it differently because they're going to be in different regions, different IPs. So, but it, it didn't work. I nothing, did not nothing, know you could do that. Nothing helped. So it, it well, no matter what, you can't get around the system. The, the, the current bit of information that's out there on a lot of stuff is passed down and some of it is wrong. And that's also the nature of popular YouTube channels that there's no formal education. There's, so you're just, you've developed a following and so therefore the people trust you and they listen to you and some of it's good, some of it's bad. So just having those groups where you can talk and the Wades are a necessary evil of the world because at the very least you're going to learn something, you know? So, um, but you know, the, I've not, I've not fully memorized the TTB <laughs> BAM, the beverage alcohol manual, but, but you know, just enough when somebody's saying something Oh, wrong. just enough to be an asshole online. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but that's the good thing though. It's, it's like, cause there is a lot of misinformation that's being spread and it's harder to sit there and police it. I mean, just this past, I would say two weeks, one of the things that I noticed is that there's a lot of great communities. There's also a lot of communities that just are like, oh my God, like put me out of my misery. But there was one, and it talked about Augusta, you know, the, the world's best bourbon. And everybody's going like, how'd they have a 13-year-old bourbon? And then somebody goes, well, absolutely, it's sourced from MGP. And that's the one that killed me. I was like, y'all, it says Kentucky straight bourbon on it. And there was like 50 comments that said MGP. And it was just so much information that's being spread, like just dumb stuff. It's like, no, it's obviously Barton. Like it says Kentucky on it. It can't, it by law it cannot be MGP. But that's just the thing is that, yes, once somebody latches onto something, they learn a new term or they knew about source whiskey and they're like, oh, it all comes from MGP. It's like, no, no, no. There's, there's a whole world you have yet to even understand here. Well, and that's that's what leads to the conversation. I mean, and, and we've heard the same. We both sound like curmudgeons. I know, I know, I know. These kids these days. <laughs> no, there's 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 these things. There's like these common tropes. I remember recently in the Four Roses group, which I don't know if where you stand if you've ever came around on it, because I remember at one point you did believe it. I don't know if you still believe. Oh wait, bullet right? Is yeah, that where we're going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So there was a recent uh, post in the Four Roses group that basically you know, made the claim that this latest uh, bullet thing was a Four Roses single barrel. And someone in the comment section goes, oh, I guess it's time for our annual My Bullet is Four Roses <laughs> uh, post. Because that, and I'm, I mentioned this downstairs, we're, we're in an era that so much information is thrown at you that you could break news and then 
a cut just like a year later, that thing is still being passed around as it's fake. Still relevant. Yeah. And you can and, and you can break news again. Right. So whether it's bourbon pursuit or, you know, and but people forget about it. They got such a short attention span. And that's correct. And, and, and no one ever goes back. Right. The, the great the greatness of people like Chuck Cowdery or Tater Talk, Wade's blog is you you will go back and reference those articles and, and remember those things. No one does that with podcasts except for clips. Right. I think it was your show in which. Uh, I always forget his fir- first name, last name, Arnett, Jack Daniels, old master. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That clip went was used in these debates and arguments. Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Arnett. Arnett. Yeah, yeah. Where they go around and they basically, like he openly says, like, Jack Daniels is bourbon. And that and that ship has slowly turned to be widely accepted. So there is progress. There's hope for the future. But a lot of it is um, still being just, like you said, just it says Kentucky bourbon and they're convinced, oh, it's double digit, must be MGP. Yeah. And that's what blows my mind is that people just have the the misconceptions and that's fine, but everybody's on their own learning experience and learning journey and trying to figure that out too. But it is funny you say that because it does seem like there are, I would say stories just regurgitate themselves all the time. The groups have basically like just a couple different topics. One is at MGP. Two is Jack Daniels bourbon. Uh, Three. Is my bullet taking four roses. How about the every year on like the anniversary of the Heaven Hill fire and everybody's like, oh my God, there was a fire? Oh. Like, because there's only people getting into it. You know, the, is Weller Pappy? There's like just a few different topics that continually cycle themselves over and over and over inside of these groups because there's just so many. And I guess that's, I want to get your, your take on this too, is because there's a lot of people that are just now getting into bourbon. And we're starting to get to the point where it's hard to decipher if the people are getting into bourbon if they actually know what good bourbon tastes like anymore, because it feels that the shelves and the strategy of many different bourbon companies and, you know, ourselves included, we're guilty of it coming out with finished products, because maybe that's the way that people, they only want to know that they want their whiskey to taste like something else. And there's this whole era that, you know, me and you and a lot of people kind of I would say grew up in our, our whiskey lives in uh, there's just like amazing 12 to 17 year Willet and Four Roses and all this other kind of stuff, beam products that necessarily just didn't make its way to today's consumer market because those are all just LTOs. And, yeah, and bygone hard. era. Yeah, exactly. So you bring up two things and I wish I had a pen and a piece of paper because sometimes when you talk, you- uh, Ask 14 questions and once? No, no, no. You inspire a, a line of thinking. So one, uh, as we're talking, do you think Four Roses will ever do a finish? It's, it shouldn't be out of their realm because here's the thing. They do pretty well themselves that if they do a finish, I feel like it has to be a Hail Mary. I mean, here's the thing. Like, Russell's is doing finishes on their LTOs. Did, do you think that was Eddie's thing? you think he was like, yeah, let's go do a rum finish? I don't know. He'd probably say it, but deep down, I have a feeling that might be against their DNA a little bit. Okay, uh, I, and that's kind of my thinking as well. I mean, I talked to John Campbell from Lafroig, and he mentioned that whenever he took over, you know, especially when it comes to scotch and you take over a legacy as the, no one's looking to innovate. You, you want to, we know what our brand is. We know what our target is. Don't rock the boat. While Turkey's DNA has been historically has done finishes. They've they've experimented. They've tried little one offs. They've done the LTOs. That's been part of the wild turkey branding for a long time. But with Four Roses, their DNA is completely invested into these the ten recipes. And if you were to finish it, well, then what's you, the point? What's the point? We've we've got ninety other combinations that we can do with all these recipes to create different blends. And I get that, but. At some point, does that become a big enough differentiator that keeps them in the spotlight? And that's Four Roses is probably the only one that is an anomaly when you look at all the big brands because big brands are constantly trying to push out new things all the time and trying to put out press releases at least once a oh month. God. At least once a month. Do you, do you get, are you on the press release for Tales of the Cocktail? Do you ever go to that? I'm not. On that one, no. Are you? Have you ever been to Tales? I've never been to Tales. I know very much of it, though. Okay, okay. So, uh, my God, the just the <laughs> amount of press release. As soon as you get put on the media list, oh, and all of a sudden, God. your email I mean, gets it's sold. Not, it's not just them; it's everyone. But the the historically, the you're right. The press release every week, 
And it's always an, an inflated headline of innovative this, innovative that. And then it's like, oh, well, you guys finished in uh, like Ambarana is not innovative. It's delicious. If you like the Penelope Ambrana, I do. But but Sherry, I mean, all these things are pretty historically been used at one point or another. Plantation is the one who did the Umbrana first. And it it's it's good. A rum finish is, is also pretty – I mean, Prideful Goat's doing a rum finish right now. Well, we're, we're playing with it. And so far, it has not been good. <laughs> so we took we – It's took, a hard one, man. It's, it's really hard. So, well, you would think that with rye, rum is a pretty good finish. And so we, we purchased uh, a bunch of uh, barrels from three different regions – if you're going to do a rum finish, do not use, just for the record, do not use South American rum barrels. <laughs> they just taste like dirt. And so our, our, I know most people think that MGP rye is, you know, no big variance there. But the Prideful Goat rye has, we specifically would get bubble gum and not dill. And I, we knew the liquid going into it was good. And then we we undid it. Yeah, <laughs> and I always wonder because you hear about the stuff that makes we, it to market. We screwed up on that one. <laughs> yeah, we did. Uh, and w- you hear about the stuff that makes it to market, but do you ever find out what distillers do with the stuff that doesn't quite like barrels? Got to have some things that were just unusable. Mm-hmm. And they're a great company and have produced. I mean, seagrass is a work of art. If you like seagrass, I love seagrass. It's good. Uh, but the apricot in there is really what gets me. Yeah. Good or bad? I love it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I'm sure there's got to be some some turds out there that, what did, what did they, did they well, just- Well, you got to go through rounds and rounds and rounds of experiments to be able to- That's the only way get you get there. better at, at anything, yeah. right? So, I wonder what happened to all that liquid. Because I, when I call brokers and stuff, you know, you call Brindiamo or any of these brokers that sell barrels, I have never seen any, like, finishes that didn't- like, you know, the, the rejects from somebody. It's always like clean liquid that's like either bourbon or rye. So I, I, I don't know. It's, <laughs> They're not just like, I got 10 barrels of Madeira finished. We just can't do anything yeah. with. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure they at some point they, they might have dumped some of it at least. Uh, you know I, you know Will, right? Will Stragas? Yes. Yeah. I, uh, we should text Will and find out what they do with it. Because no one ever talks about it. It's only about the stuff that works. So, But you guys are, I mean, the facility here is massive. Like, I'm so excited for you guys. I saw that. I appreciate it. In Kentucky, you have to put that notice there and allow people to protest. Yeah, big like 4 by 4 billboard of yellow writing that says Covers like the whole door. Yeah, be like you're serving alcoholic drinks. Well, kind of. We're going to be blending some alcoholic drinks. What so no intention of a tasting room or I mean, there might be something here, but sure. we've got a lot of other other plans in the works for that too. Yeah, so it on for those listening, the, on the sign it does say that you've got a certain time period, I think August 6th, to file a complaint and protest Bourbon Pursuits uh, endeavor here. <laughs> so depending on how nice you are on, <laughs> to me on this po- on this podcast, yeah, there, well, yeah, there may be a, a notice. Yeah, 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 just an anonymous tip or yeah. something like now that. Now do you want to admit that uh, <laughs> Bullets Barrels are not for us? <laughs> I, I know. It was really hard to, to admit that because I was in the camp that it was because, yeah, it's one of those things that you've heard forever that, oh, they have a particular yeast strain that's dedicated to them. Uh, it was found in an office. They have other barrels with stamped heads that say exactly what it's for. And so, yeah, you had this this thought process that, yeah, all- A completely all, logical yeah. thought process. A hundred percent. Anyone who thinks that those things, that the single barrels are clearly for roses, I, I can't fault you for coming to a reasonable conclusion. But this is in particular why people, why these fights on Facebook happen is so that you can- one of the things that kills me within bourbon is we love to make massive assumptions. And if you have someone who is influential like Fred or Kenny and you Mm. guys, and and I'm not blaming you guys. I'm just saying that in general, theoretically, there are a lot of people out there that have followers that repeat things that they hear. and, And, and that's why it gets out there. That's why, you know, people have been saying for years, assuming that some people are on the take, some of these influencers and some of them I know, for a fact, are not like I, I. They've. It's frustrating. <laughs> it is. It's just frustrating how quickly uh, things devolve on uh, online. Uh, things that get passed that are not true. Like w- recently, we were talking before the show started, and it's kind of a little bit. We call this a segue. Uh, is the the concept of turning whiskey into bourbon? And this was a relatively new thing. Like how did how did this one come up? Because I know that. Either you started the post or somebody else started the post, like kind of give the, the background of like where it came from. Sure. So there's a guy on uh, Instagram and I think his name is Urban Bourbonist. Very nice guy. He's out of Chicago. Yep. I know. He's very 
and this is what I love, when you find someone and you have that friendly debate, but it's like logical and respectful, and then you both walk away learning something. So let, let me give the back context. So a couple of years back before Dave Pickerel departed, Dave came on my show on ESPN in Houston, and he told me, uh, I thought it was on camera, but I went back and looked. It's not on camera, but he he Dave's always been a consultant. And he told me, as well as some distilleries in Houston, that you can turn, you, you can age whiskey in used barrels and turn it into bourbon by letting it touch new oak. Because if you go back and you read, and I know everybody's having a stroke here, but if you go back and read- <laughs> Maybe just having a panic attack. Yeah. yeah. If you go back and read the Code of Federal Regulations, the CFR that describes the process of bourbon, it mentions it has to be aged in new oak. There's also in the beverage alcohol manual, I'm going to say, I think it's chapter, not chapter four, chapter seven, it mentions that you can, if you do certain things to the liquid, a process- a formula that you it can change its class and type. And as we all know, if you take like Maker's Mark 46 or if you take Angel's Envy and you take, and it says Kentucky Straight Bourbon, finished in port barrels, that is called the formula. And it looks like it's bourbon, but it is not. In fact, if you look it up online, it, it changes into class type 641, whiskey specialties. So the concept is you can take something that is bourbon and turn it into a different class type by doing something to it. Knob Creek Maple says exactly that. Knob Kentucky Straight Bourbon finished with natural maple flavorings. So what happens if you go the other way around? Because we would, in, a, in our minds as, as humans, we, we think of it as a hierarchy. We think of it as bourbon is king. But if you're just being objective, take the emotion out of it. If you can go this way by changing a formula, why can't you go this way? And Dave Picarell told... Uh, not just me, but Gulf Coast Distillers, Whitmire's in Houston, that you could age it six years in a used barrel. It's American whiskey, and let it finish it six months in New Oak. Now you now got it's bourbon. bourbon. Now it's not six year old bourbon, but if you, I think the TTB recently opened for debate the concept of including all the time in wood on the age statement. I think that's being loosened which would make this exact practice very sketchy. Because if you went six years in used barrel and a month in new barrel and called it six-year-old bourbon, that's misleading and, sh and shitty, in uh, my opinion. Yeah, there's because now I'm thinking, like, well, two things. One, that's a big missed opportunity for all those light whiskey barrels that were out there, those, like, 13 to 21 years. It's like, you hear that, Gene? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now I'm thinking, I'm like, oh, shit, did we do it and go for it? Like, is is it misleading? I don't know. Maybe, but there's nothing illegal about it. And that's what we've tried to learn is that the consumer ultimately just doesn't care. And then the second thing is now you know what to do with all those Ryan rum barrels. <laughs> yeah, just just back in new well, oak. But here's the thing. If you were to put it in new barrel, a new oak, it's got flavoring, so it no longer qualifies, right? Because there's no added flavoring in bourbon. But if you go used barrel, because it happens in the basic concept of bourbon, right? When it comes off the still, if it meets all requirements, it could be corn whiskey. It doesn't have to be aged in a barrel. So if you, you, you are in practice taking one class type, corn whiskey, putting it in new oak immediately, and turning it into bourbon. So we, it does happen. But would it be shady to go used and then so, – so what happened was is we were having this discussion because there is a push against the TTB to allow – formally to allow used barrels to be called bourbon because we know that it was lobbied years ago for new oak to be used every time. But there's no real reason for that other than just keeping people in busy. In I was to say that it makes the Coopers happy. Sure. You know, they, they get to keep their job because of it. And I think that starts to play into a little bit of a different narrative because anybody that's had something from a used Cooper versus having new oak, there's a very noticeable taste difference. It's the same thing as why... And color. Yeah, and color, exactly. It's the same thing as why French wine casks, why they only use them three or four times because after that fourth time, you're just not getting any flavor out of it. And the same thing could be said about this is that you're going to get a lot more flavor out of new oak than you are out of the used oak. So one of the things that and has, does, is, is that going to create more consumer confusion when they see bourbon next to each other and they got one that's a uh, a darker hue versus like this very straw grassy color right next to it. So you already get that with different aged whiskeys, right? So if it, it you know, I, I remember at one point Pabst Blue Ribbon did like a, a one second aged bourbon. Yeah. You're already going to get the consumer confusion based on how long it sits in wood, but... 
Bryant uh, Sippencorn was tagged in the post and he was like, oh, interesting conversation. Let's dig into it. And Urban Bourbonist reached out to uh, the TTB to get a formal uh, response. But here is the beauty of the TTB. <laughs> they're like, God damn, will you guys just go watch TV or do something like productive? Is that what they're, they're wondering? <laughs> they're, well, they're, they're, the problem is, is that if you get a formal response from the TTB, it is one agent. And that one agent couldn't be wrong. And anyone who submitted a COLA, you've submitted, have, do you do all your COLAs or do you have someone do it? Oh, we've done it. So yeah, sometimes you'll get a kickback. Sometimes it goes through. And sometimes the kickback you disagree with. You're like, no, 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 this person's stupid. You're, you know, Wade, go, go yell at this person. <laughs> and uh, Dave Pickerel mentioned that as well. Sometimes you'll get agents that kind of push back on ideas and then you have to literally debate with them. And, and so getting a formal response from the TTP doesn't make it official unless they create a ruling on it. And so the response from the TTP is, no, you can't do that. You can't take used barrels and then turn it into bourbon. But I know people who have. I mean, Hill okay, Rock. So, so the TTB actually did. They, they came out and said, no, you can't do this. You can't change the classification. So the urban bourbonist sent a, an inquiry. They responded back and said, no, you cannot do this. This is in violation. And so he he. the problem is, is when they send you that response, it's not like you can just reply back and it, it's a it's a, through a system. And so he, he'd like to have a dialogue with them. And he had, he had to issue another submission to try to get a, a back and forth going. And um, they said, no, you can't do that. But it's been done. Hill Rock does it. Interesting. Hill Rock's got a cola out there. If you pull up Hill Rock from 2007, as far back as the, the TTB cola search website only goes back 15 years. So go back 15, 2008. They've got their Solera aged bourbon yeah. and it is labeled bourbon. Solera is not a TTB regulated term. It's so it's not like where we see Kentucky bourbon finished in sherry. That's a formula. Solera bourbon doesn't really mean anything, but it, it says bourbon. It's classified as bourbon. It was approved as bourbon. And so- And I'm, I'm kind of curious because the, the, the Solera aging technique take, basically says like we just keep adding to a, a, a vessel, but we take some out of it. And so you just continually kind of have a, yeah. a similar product at the end of the day, or there's always some liquid of something- that had been there 10 years ago, if you just keep doing Correct. that process. That's, every Tootsie Roll that you taste today includes Tootsie Rolls from the first batch. There they always go. roll it into it. So there's also a, a distillery, uh, there's several distilleries that have, that have done this, but, but here's the thing. There's probably more that have done it that you don't know. So you, you could slap a 15-year-old age statement on this and get it approved. There's no verification. No, there's definitely not. Correct. It's, it's, it, a lot of this is all just... Scout all of, of honor, you know, scout just, of honor. Yeah. I, I promise you guys that this is a straight bourbon. Yeah, and it's not until after the fact that it's like the gluten free statement. There is no certification for gluten free if it's challenged and audited after the fact. You have to be able to test and prove it has, I think, like less than one part per thousand or something of, of gluten. Uh, and as we know, all spirits are gluten free. Um, <laughs> Yet there's nobody that's like gone on the offensive. Me like ours, our bourbon's gluten free. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I'm sure there's someone out there who's putting gluten-free on a bourbon label. I'm I mean, it's sure. a smart idea. You should probably just go ahead and do it. Gluten-free, 100 calories per shot or one ounce. Like, I saw that for the first time on- So a, you saw nutritional a, facts on a- Yeah, on a label. I'll show you how's How is that allowed? So it was on an old granddad label that was only given to employees. And it actually had the calorie count. Okay, on so there. it wasn't uh, officially it, approved. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, it yeah. was uh, it was something that was just kind of out there. And I was like, "Ooh, I've never seen this before." I think the FDA regulates the nutritional table, and you're not allowed to put anything on the label that would imply healthy. Correct. Because then that would be their department. So the many many distilleries out there that create a label, create a product, there is no verification that anything on the label matches what's in the bottle. It's all like once you hear about it and you get, you know, an accusation, you can file a complaint and there's an investigation or an audit. But up to this point, you can put whatever you want. There's, I mean, gl like I said, gluten-free, as long as the wording matches the CFR, the TTB is going to approve it. But I think you can make a sound argument and a sound case that you can take, like what Dave's point was, was true, but dishonest and misleading. And I'm not saying that Dave is dishonest. Uh, I'm not accusing, I'm not besmirching his name. I'm just, I'm telling you that I, he told me firsthand who does it, that he's, he, I got the idea from him. 
<laughs> yeah, here we go. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, if we're going to push blame on anybody, we're yeah, going to yeah. push it on the guy that can't defend himself anymore. Oh, <laughs> okay, that's a good counter. That's a good counter. Um, but uh, but I've also had conversations with other distillers that are currently that have been doing it. So, uh, man, I'm I really don't want to start a yeah, war. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't start yeah. a war. But it, you're right. I Allegedly, th- there is. <laughs> I don't know because you you look at bourbon and you think of it, and this is, I guess, where. A lot of people look at the romantic side of things. It's it's a it's an American based product. Uh, it's pure. It's just something that is like it's just you know it's just the essence of like what we want Americana to be when it comes to whiskey and everything like that. But we have seen the shift of the consumer. We've seen the shift of spirit producers. Like that's completely changing, and it's changing because everybody doesn't necessarily just want their whiskey to taste like whiskey anymore. They want their whiskey to taste like honey. Or they want it to taste like cherry finish, or they want it everything to be toasted or double oaked or whatever. Well, that it is. word "toasted" has been beat to death the last couple of years. I mean, go on, tell me, tell me why you think that. Well, I just I think we hit uh, you hit toasted eclipse. Is that who's that? I, I'm just saying, if we eclipsed the the amount oh, of like I, how much you want to say toasted about? Yeah, I, I think what happens is is we someone produces a killer product, and then you've got. There's keywords on it that people are unfamiliar with or not used. Like the word toasted is, has been really heavily pushed the last few years. Uh, it's always been around, but it's, it feels like there are certain words that become trendy, certain types of releases that become trendy. I mean, Angel's Envy, correct me if I'm wrong, it, they're the ones who have really pioneered bourbon finished in sherry barrels. Well, I mean, I think that was wine an, barrels. An important. Yeah, but that's been their... For hundreds of years. Well, that's that's well. I mean, I, I would say Angel's Envy. Like that's just been their their business model. Like, and they were the ones that truly went that way. And it's it's you know going back to the very beginning of our show, being curmudgeons, and people yeah. go, "Hey, what's your favorite bourbon?" And somebody goes, "Angel's Envy," and be like, "Well, you know, we don't need to get into it." Yeah, and that's that that it, that it does trigger a response in certain uh, people who have been in the game a while. But you know, I mean, there's there's other things too. I mean, like we've had discussions. I remember Fred broke a while back. There was a, a company out of Sweden, maybe the UK. Oh, Bourbon Style, Bourbon Style whiskey or something like Bourbon that. Bourbon Style is what they should say. Uh, but there's there's a couple of brands that are out there that are being made and produced to the exact same standards as bourbon and labeled as bourbon. And so when people say, well, you know, can you make bourbon in in another country? And they say, well, no, you can't do that. Well, no, you, you can. Uh, Just can't be called bourbon. You can. Okay. You shouldn't. You shouldn't because then that would be a violation of our trade agreements. The way that these things are enforced, the the way that we all come to the conclusion that tequila can only be made in tequila, or sorry, in Mexico, scotch can only be made in scotch, that these are all- Actually, in tequila, can only be in a few regions in Mexico. Correct. Yeah. Other than that, it's just considered agave spirit or whatever it is. Right. So there has been, the way that that is established is through trade agreements. We all agree- that we will not, America, we will not sell anything labeled tequila if it didn't come from fit your standards. And they agree that they will not let bourbon be sold in Mexico unless it came, you know, from our standards. But what if you have a country that isn't in our trade agreements, that doesn't honor this this side of things? And Fred specifically caught a company, I want to say it was one of those really white blonde countries right in the middle. Yeah, Norwegian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's one of those countries. Uh, but Fred had, uh, I remember, I'll never forget it because he goes, this is bullshit. He, <laughs> he put it on Twitter, shared the label, and it just says bourbon and it's produced there. And there's another company I found recently that does this. And I, I believe it's sold in the UK and they're not supposed to allow that. And so it, you can do whatever you want. You know, but it's it it they're not supposed to. I mean, in in Australia, you can there's bourbon producers here in Kentucky, like Beam sells bourbon in Australia under forty percent. Yeah, that's seventy proof. Yeah, yeah that's they do that. a direct violation of what we say, but they do it for tax purposes over there. And it's like, well, bourbon can't be below eighty. Well, no, yes, it can. <laughs> so there, I mean, there's. I'm not saying things are supposed to, or I am saying whether they should or shouldn't happen, but people, things can happen. You know, people producing American whiskey and turning it into bourbon through some loophole that they found just to save money. Yeah. But that's the thing that has really been interesting to us as as now that we're on the producer side, and I'd love to be able to get your, your take on this too, is that it's hard to just say, okay, we've got our bourbon whiskey, like I'll, I'll take our our toasted, for example, our Pursuit United, finished in toasted American and French oak casks. Like, it's a really great product. Like, we love it. It's one of our best sellers. However, 
it feel like it misses the mark sometimes because if we called this our cigar blend, we might be in a better position because like it just has that more gravitational pull. Do you feel that as producers, like you have to sit there and you've got to put a name to something? Penelope did an amazing job with it. You know, they call things Rio and Valencia. Barrel does it with Vantage and Seagrass. Do you feel that there is a, a need to sit there and brand something as a name rather than just sit there and say, oh, well, we can just, we can create all these little one-offs, but instead we've got to create a, a portfolio or an identity for it. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase. And go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. Do you feel that as producers, like you have to sit there and you've got to put a name to something? Penelope did an amazing job with it. You know, they call things Rio and Valencia. Barrel does it with Vantage and Seagrass. Do you feel that there is a, a need to sit there and brand something as a name rather than just sit there and say, oh, well, we can just, we can create all these little one-offs, but instead we've got to create a, a portfolio or an identity for it. Well, so <clears throat> I think if you were to talk to anyone in marketing or anyone that does something that involves marketing, like producers, it's not even a debate. The answer is yes. I mean, you, you, Speaking, turn, I'm going to pour some myself. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, I, man, I really am. It's been a while since I've had this. I'm really happy with this. I love it. The flagship was great. And I have not had this. There you go. So I ag agree that the words matter. Prideful Goat specifically, we knew going into it, we had to put the words cask strength. Right there on the, on the bottle. Mm -hmm. We knew we were going to put the words unfiltered because we wanted it to be unfiltered. We wanted an untouched, unscathed, unadulterated, something that Wade might, you know. He might I, actually drink. I didn't have a dad growing up, but, uh, you know, getting that seal of approval from old, <laughs> old Pops Wade over there, I, I knew that we wanted just a straightforward, pure product that, that put all the key indicators on it. Uh, do you know who Ralphie is? Yes, I do. Uh, from Scotland, right? Yeah. He does all the Scotch reviews. Yes. Ralphie is an untouched, shining example of honest feedback. Doesn't accept, I don't, I think he doesn't even accept free samples. Like he, the guy is untouched in terms of uh, credibility. I remember the first thing I learned about whiskey is that if you're looking in a store in Scotland or in the Scotch Isle and you're looking for something of quality, because back then, you know, there weren't like, a bunch of review channels. Yeah, if, he was like an OG. But and he, by the way, I've seen his his videos. He's just an old guy sitting in. It looks like a bunker. And it's like stone walls behind him absolutely. and all that kind of stuff. His, right? I think they call them bothies. Yeah, yeah. So so he um he said there's three things you can look for on a label to tell you the quality inside. Before you don't have to look up a Google review. You don't have to look up notes. There's three things on a label that tells you this had some care involved. That this is a good product, and that is. Uh, if it says unfiltered or non-chill filtered is the big term over there. If it's, a, if it's a bump in proof, historically scotch, a lot of it's just 80 proof, flat, 80, you know. So if you see 90 proof, oh, okay, there's a little bit of, they purposely made a decision that went against finances. Because if you water down 80 proof, that's your most economical revenue. You can make the most profit on it. But the fact that they sacrificed some profit to make sure that it tasted good 
is an indicator. So 90 proof, 45, whatever, uh, non-chill filtered and uh, no added color. If they put on the label that says no added color, no E150A, uh, this producer, you're likely, it's a safe bet that it's probably going to be a good product. And uh, you would see it on, on like Ben Romick. Uh, a lot of, do you ever drink scotch? Now I was about to say, does that run rampant in the scotch world where people e, add color to yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. E150A caramel coloring is, and it, historically the reason why they did it was for consistency on the shelf. If you, you, know, you know what a Johnny Walker bottle looks like? Yeah. You can see the liquid inside the bottle. So a lot of companies, what they would do is different batches because they were producing so much that sometimes they'd be sitting on the shelf next to each other, widely different coloring. Like, oh, something's wrong with that one. And so what they would do is purposely match the color. And so on the shelf- So it, they make all of them just a little bit darker than the, what the base really is. Yeah. So they all, all match. And they're all consistent coloring. So no one's going to get freaked out. Or what they would do is put it in a dark bottle. So that's also, now I know Lagavulin does it and they do the dark bottle, but a lot of brands would do a dark glass bottle so that they don't have to add color to it. So the consumer can't see the liquid. They can't make any ignorant assessments. And the same thing happens with chill filtering. So if you were to buy a product off the shelf and see things floating in it, in the old days, they would assume something was wrong. And not just the consumer, sometimes the distributor of the liquor store would automatically reject it when it came in. And so they would filter out anything that would float and now us, we, we win. The consumer wins because we've been fighting for years for cast strength, unfiltered. If we see floaties, hell yeah, brother. That's, I, I want to just, just shake it up. Who yeah. doesn't love pulp? Yeah. Well, a lot of people <laughs> Actually, don't love pulp. I'm, I'm a big fan of orange juice with pulp. So I love pulp. Yes. And, and if you could, it, a lot of people don't. My wife struggles with the texture, but I'd love a good chunky drink, as gross as that sounds now that I'm hearing myself. <laughs> um, all right. So I haven't tasted this. Yeah, let me know what you think. Yeah, uh, on that aspect, though, it is good to kind of understand because I'm and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are not very well known in the scotch world. But for what you've been doing, not only with your show, because by the way, we forgot to mention you also host another show called Whiskey Neat. And as a part of that, you have a lot of different people on, uh, mostly celebrities, by the way, which I'm really jealous of. But you you all taste through a lot of different things. It's not just scotch or right. bourbon. And so you kind of had to expand your palate to, to be on there. So have you always been intrigued with scotch? So I started with scotch. That was my entry into things. And I actually originally early on thought bourbon was boring <laughs> uh, because it was always new oak. There was nothing, there was nothing really innovative. It's so new. There's nothing innovative. About yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's just, a, it's a, it's a narrow flavor palette yeah. compared to scotch who can do all these finishes and fun things. And uh, oh, that went, took a big 180 now. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. So I, I, I started with scotch. I got into bourbon. We started the Whiskey Social in 2015, eight years ago. Uh, a short time later, HBS was started the Houston Bourbon Society. And then it just became such a part. I mean, every fiber of your being is now involved in this industry. You personally. So is you. Yeah, yeah. So it, it just has, it, it's become a, a big thing. So yeah, we, we stopped doing brand interviews on the show because we thought, uh, well, non-celebrity brand interviews. Yes. Uh, because it, any brand that would do a podcast was, they've done 40 of them. It's the same conversation. Regurgitation information. And our ratings hit the floor. I mean, we just, it, we, it, we, there was no, it, it's expensive to produce the show. We have a team. And so we stopped doing interviews that were not of substance, not, not going to garner the views. And so then it, we would, you know, Colin Hanks, I mean, recently Brian Cranston was on, of course, I love Mescal. Say what you will about celebrity brands. What we would ultimately do is just have an interesting conversation with someone, and who's, I mean, Brian Cranston's pretty freaking interesting. So I'd say so. Um, but we we're actually on hi- hiatus. I have not done the show since the Brian Cranston interview. I've been traveling quite a bit. We we're trying to. The hardest part of this is distribution. And it, when he says this, he's pointing at a bottle. And uh, that's, oh, oh, sorry, get, yeah. getting your brand out there. It's it is. It's it's definitely it's, the the thing that keeps you up every night. It's the tier that cares the least, and they are the most important. They are the most important. And so we're in, we just got in Alaska, Arizona, New Mexico, and we have like four states that we have been like about to, about to launch into that's just taking forever to get through the regulatory thing. And I mean, it's the hardest, the hardest job. So the priority has been getting Prideful Goat and Gregarious Crump into new states and, and growing those brands. So we just, we, we took a, a, a quick break. I mean, if... Matthew McConaughey called and said, I'd, I'd like to come back on. Then I, I would go back and, and, and 
I do it for my truck. I don't. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I do it anywhere. Yeah, he can call me nine o'clock at night. Uh, but yeah, so I just uh, the priority has been the the liquid. Yeah, and that's we we have this the shared. Hey, we have a shared passion. We also have the shared misery that goes into building a brand because we talk about a lot on Behind the Pursuit or other podcasts just to be able to talk, you know, like, like what's it take to build a brand? And it, it really truly is. It's the hardest part of just trying to get your bottle in front of people. Uh, sales and distribution is probably the hardest thing. And then when people don't understand, like, yeah, there's a bunch of marketing spend that you have just like never even thought of just to make sure that your, you know, your products getting awareness out there in the market. So I guess a, a question for you is, as you've been building your particular brand, the Prideful Go, Gregarious Grump, you know, are there other things in the pipeline that you're, you're trying to put out there? Uh, you know, you talked about the, the rum finish stuff. Are there other things that you're looking to expand upon just in the portfolio as well? Yeah. So we've been historically on track to do one new release a year. Normally during O&D. O&D, meaning for anybody that's not in the trade, <laughs> sorry, is... Sorry, uh, October, November, December. <laughs> Which is weird because you could just call it Q4. Like, that's like that's what everybody else in every industry don't calls it. Don't you have it. a financial background, I think? <laughs> uh, no, I don't. It's in tech. But, right. but yeah, I, know, I know you could have fiscal year, but calendar year Q4 is pretty synonymous. So in the retail industry, even outside of spirits, they, it's also the most... They call it O&D. Do it's, they really? It's the, important, okay. it's the most important part of the year. Um, I remember many years ago, I used to work at a mall. So did I. And uh, I worked at a jewelry store and the kiosk- Was it, was it K's? Or did you? I, I worked at Zales first. Zales, and, okay. And then I became a regional manager for Samuels. And I remember thinking, man, I'm a big boy. Yeah. I, I remember thinking- Sell, Selling diamond necklaces, <laughs> tennis bracelets. Yeah. As much as, and that, that, I think that company's dead now, but the kiosk that you see in the middle of the mall- during October, November, December, everyone's rent skyrockets. And just the little cart, the little push cart in the middle of the mall, they were paying 7500 a month. What? For uh, October, November, and December. And it was the most important. This is why a lot of malls see a ton of turnover because they're, they're going to get their money in O&D. rest of the year, it doesn't matter. But uh, I forgot how we got on this O&D. Uh, oh, so we yeah, got a new a release coming. Yeah, new releases. So uh, we did the 15-year four years ago now, five years ago now, 2019, I think. That was a fantastic one. Uh, I, I've got like this, like I'm putting like two inches up in front of my face here. It's like, that's how much I have left in the bottle. And I, I uh, appreciate that. That one was, uh, I think that was, a, I don't feel like that one doesn't count because it's such an easy win. <laughs> yeah, it's 15 you get, year you get 15 year old liquid, yeah. you're, you're going you're gonna to knock it out of the park. And then the next year we did the the baby goat, the six year rye, which, uh, you know, good old Fred Menick has given it really, really great rave, rev- rave reviews. Same thing with ADHD whiskey. Matt, uh, he gave it Rye of the Year, which meant a lot. And uh, then last year we did the six year bourbon. Same thing, MGP. Same price. We we don't we didn't raise the price or anything. We just we line itemed everything. Uh, this year we thought it was going to be a rum finish rye. Rum finish rye. That is not going to be the case. Uh, we we might do some if any of those barrels survive that test, they'll probably be distillery only. You know, a couple of single barrels. But we have a lot of our early barrels uh, that we got from Sagamore. They're MGP rye, but they unloaded, I think we got 350 barrels from them. Uh, just turned eight. Nice. So, um, Some good age on them. Eight, and considerably darker. I, I mean, I was really surprised at the six-year difference. If you look at the glass. It's, it's, that, it's that aging climate environment in Baltimore, right? Well, well, they they were transferred to Texas a few years back, and so they've had, they've got about three solid years of Texas oh, nice. heat on them, and whatever that means, and and uh, it's dark. So we're, we're thinking we're going to do we've we've got thirteen that just turned eight. Well, we think those might be single barrels, and we'll we'll send those out. But another thirty or forty of them will be eight in February. So we can do an eight year single barrel program this fall, release the brand. And they do a small batch release in uh, beginning of next year, of eight year, which would be nice. And I, you know, you've seen the fluctuation in barrel availability. Some of it's gone down. A lot of it's become more accessible. I think all those investment groups that really ruined, that mm-hmm. created the bourbon bubble, which that is something we should talk about. It's it's as what to say. It's I, I, we we can dive into it a little bit, but it's one of those things that yes, the investment because we've we've touched on it quite a bit because yes, the people that have put it into barrels that are doing for investors and now they're trying to unload it four years they're in for a rude awakening because it seems like there's a standoff between buyers and sellers because the prices are dropping but buyers aren't buying yet 
And so it's just like, who's going to cave first? Oh, they're going to have to, but, and they're still going to see the returns. So I, I give you an example. When we first bought the six year arrive from MGP, we bought, I believe we bought it directly from Barry. Barry Yonke, by yeah, the way. Yeah, Barry Yonke. Who's, who's a name we've thrown around the show before. Uh, $2,700 a barrel for six-year liquid. We went back a, less, a year later. less than a year later, and he tried to sell me seven-month-old liquid for 3000 a barrel. Oh, gosh. That would put it on the shelf. No one, But that's the thing is the consumer is not going to buy a less than one-year-old product for over 100 bucks. Well, no, absolutely not. That's the standoff we're, we're facing right now. And the problem is, is... And then he tried to sell me new fill contracts. He said, well, why don't you, you know, and he wanted a minimum, which I get. And a lot of these investment groups have, have you know, ponied up a lot of money for new fills. Let's say it costs $800 to fill a barrel. Which is about average. Yeah. Sure. In three years, four years, you're going to get between two and $3,000 a barrel easily. No, no, no doubt in my mind you can get that. So you've made a shit ton of money. So if that fluctuates, if the market fluctuates, you still made a shit ton of money. But here's the, here's the beauty of this, and this is where crypto failed, is even if the barrel's empty, you're still going to get between two and $4,000. The first 286 barrels we bought, 12 of them showed up empty. Oh, gosh. We didn't get our money back. No, you didn't? We got 12 empty barrels. What we did is we ended up rolling it into, and this happens depending on who you're buying from. Yeah, as I so, say, I was like, we've had some empty and we're like, uh... Y'all need to make this whole. And they said, okay. We were not so lucky. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we, what you end up doing is you end up spreading that cost across the, the actual yield. And then you know what your, your cost of goods are. So. And by the way, most of that is in the contracts where they don't have to necessarily yep. make you whole on it. But it, yeah, you're right. It just depends on who you're working with. So the Facebook groups didn't cause the, the they may have caused the hubbub. Everyone's talking about it. But the real issue uh, that has resulted is a lot of these craft distillers got some money behind them and they paid, I'm not going to name names, Nulu, but they paid <laughs> for they paid for a more expensive core product in order just to stay alive. They've got a, it ends up being a four-year product for 80, 90, 100 bucks. And so that did happen and that's where that bubble is going to pop because a lot of consumers, myself included, you're burned out on it. I'm tired of buying the next wax dip with a Buzz Lightyear toy on top of New Riff, whatever, you know? So it you end up- How many of those do you have? Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Absolute zero. <laughs> uh, I, I Don't get me wrong. I love a good sticker, but I'm not- uh, There was one, uh, I forget who did it, but there was a wild turkey that was done as the Night King from Game of Thrones, and they waxed- uh, Underneath of it, right? They, yeah, on yeah. the on the shoulder of the bottle, they waxed uh, a crown, a, a Night King crown or whatever. And I'm like, I mean, I'll, I'll buy it. It's wild turkey, <laughs> you know? But, but I'm very mad about it. <laughs> so we've got consumer burnout. And I don't know, and, and, and you can probably answer this, but there has been a drop in the 60 to $80 range of products, even good ones. There, we're on this like... I talked to Heaven's Door and, uh, well, I talked to a few brands that are in that 60 to $80 range and things have slowed down. Smoke Wagon has slowed down. Oh, totally. I had a whole conversation with Aaron about it and, and uh, Smoke Wagon's no longer highly allocated. You can find it everywhere. Some people, it's funny how the consumer views things, but they kind of perceive- Because they're like, oh, I don't really want it anymore. Right. And they perceive it as like, oh, how far the mighty have fallen. No, dude- <sighs> Okay. Like that's like, what every brand can aspire to. Well, and that stems from people accusing Buffalo Trace of purposely like, oh, it's a popular brand because it's allocated. There's a lot of things that are, I, I'm sure you're on allocation. I I can only produce so much. A distributor will put it on allocation to make sure that one store doesn't get all the product for a market. And it has nothing to do with if the key to a successful brand was to make it allocated, then everybody would do it. Right. And it's a and weird- they'll most likely fail anyway. And you know what I think Sazerac does? I think this is where I th there's a lot of conspiracy theories as to what Sazerac does, like producing a bunch of new products when, hey, I'd like to buy OWA, like stop- Just the regular stuff. Yes. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I want to buy the regular stuff. Stop producing new labels. I think what it is, and this is something that's probably heavily influenced by the marketing side, and this is theory, it's conjecture, I don't know, but- when you're a brand that is considerably underpriced, I mean, ego like most Sazerac bourbon products. All name one of them that's not underpriced. Uh, Daniel Weller. 
Oh, that's a fucking solid joke. Oh, Double eagle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Let, let me back up. I meant their core, the not, core, not core an LTM. stuff. Yeah, so they're, if if they're all between twenty to fifty dollars, yeah, yeah. Eagle and rare. Even, even what barrel proof EH Taylor is at like what seventy seventy five. Yeah, it's it, it is. Eagle rare is ten year Kentucky bourbon for thirty five bucks. That is objectively way underpriced. Anyone else would be crazy, right? That is what causes it to fly off the shelf. If they're concerned about jumping, because you remember a few years back, they kind of eked up a little bit on the OWA and the Weller 12. They've eked up on the pricing, but they still, Weller 12 is still less than, I mean, well, it's about 50 bucks. Uh, is it? I was like, I thought it was like closer to 70, 75, but still, it's- Might, that's, be, might that's be depending on the market. For, that's still a steal. I mean, shit, I remember getting it for $30, $35, but for today's market, that's still a steal. For, for today's market, any independent bottler doing 12 years is going to be over 100 bucks. Oh, hands down. Yeah. So instead of doing that, if they- Instead of changing the price and hurting the brand, because you remember Beam did it a few years ago. When Beam raised bookers from 50 to 100, everybody flipped the shit out. Everybody panicked. So then they backpedaled. And then you've got to deal with PR nightmares. And then you know what happened? They just start releasing at $5 more every single time. And Correct. so now we're back up to 100 and consumers don't even notice. Don't even it. notice. Yeah. So what they've done, what Buffalo Trace has done, is instead of char- raising the price for a brand that they want to keep a certain price at, you just create a new one at a higher price, like Daniel Weller. Yeah. So if we want to get our margin, we want to get our money, let's just create a new brand and make it an LTL and we'll raise the price up and then we're, we're, we're golden. We, we achieved the same thing without hurting the branding of the core products, uh, you know, the $35 to $45 bottles. It's like Brown Foreman, those single barrels are four years old. It's amazing how, how much the, are they? The blue label, yeah, it's hundred bucks, maybe or eighty, ninety, whatever it is. Liquid. Yeah, and people eat it up. And I, and for the most part, we've done picks, and I will go on record, and I always say that I would much rather prefer a hundred proof Old Forester than I will their barrel proof. Well, in the in that specific example, if Old Forester one hundred proof went from twenty bucks to ninety. It'd be newsworthy. The whole world would freak out. I mean, it would be a nightmare. Or we'll just create a cast strength and a pretty bottle. Don't get me wrong. I like the product. I'm happy. What I'm trying to underline is that brands can get around damaging a brand or going through that process by simply creating a new SKU that has no, you could make whatever price you want. And then they're just objectively judging it on that single product. Mm -hmm. Man, we do. I sound like a curmudgeon. I, I swear to God, guys, I'm not as grumpy as as, as it sounds. <laughs> well, but you do have a, a name called Gregarious Grump as your one of your yeah. your flagship brand. I right? mean, that is a pretty uh, accurate thing. As I'm very gregarious, but I, I just there's yeah, I'm I'm being grumpy. I apologize. No, no, no. This has been a fun conversation, and you know, to wrap it up, I, I just want to say thank you again for coming on because you've been able to. I think you've enlightened a few people, especially when we start talking about TTB rules and BAMs and codes and stuff sure. like that. I think that's what we always try to do and we try to aspire to is is making sure that when you listen to the show or whether you are I mean, that's the good thing, at least about our audience, is that most of them are the Whiskey 102 kind of consumers. And so, yeah, they do want to know more. They do want to learn. And you provide a lot of information out there. I mean, before we had this conversation today, I didn't really know about taking something and turning it into bourbon. And it, we'll kind of see how that shakes out. I, it'll be an interesting kind of thing to see what happens in the next few months. It'll get shut down for sure. I yeah. mean, if it becomes a public discussion and it actually goes, I, there's going to be an official ruling on it at some point. But for those that want to look into it yourself, simply the BAM is the beverage alcohol manual that the TTB releases every year as kind of a guide to the rules. And I believe it's chapter four is class and types. It tells you you know, what bourbon is, sums it up in an easy thing. Uh, chapter five or chapter seven, I believe covers HCBFM, which is harmless coloring, flavoring, blending materials. And it tells you on a very simple graph, what can have some harmless coloring, flavoring, blending materials, and what cannot based on class type. And it also goes into explain, and it gives the perfect example that if you were to take bourbon and you were to add yellow number five to it, then the label could say bourbon with yellow number five added to it. And it would change the class type. Some things you do to some class types do not change the class type unless it breaks the rules. And that's where class type 641 comes in, which is your whiskey whiskey specialties. specialties. Yeah. So it's, it's, my whole point is trust no one, (laughs) trust no one, question yourself, uh, look into it. Uh, I sound like Eddie Bravo and yeah, learn something.
Dude, I, I really appreciate it. And thanks you coming on. I think we had a great conversation. And that's what, that's what I love about having these with you is because it can go in 20 different directions. <laughs> because yeah, yeah. I mean, cause you're in the thick of it like I am and trying to understand exactly what's happening in the market, what's happening with consumer behavior. And it's interesting, at least for me, to be able to do this and have an opportunity to let our listeners kind of get a deep dive into our minds and our discussions too. So if people want to know more about you, where they find you, where they find your product, where they can... Appreciate go to the, go to Houston Whiskey Social, all that sort of stuff. Just go ahead and plug it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Whiskey Pete on Instagram, uh, it's a long story, but it's whiskey without the E. You can go to, uh, I would highly encourage you to, uh, our products are on Sealbox. Uh, Prideful Goat is available there. Although, Blake, I don't think the bourbon's on there. We should, we <laughs> we should talk about that. that. Yeah. Um, uh, HoustonWhiskeySocial.com. We've got a huge festival coming up November 18th. It's the largest in the state. You're going to be there. I say largest in the state. It, it's nothing compared to what Kentucky does. We're talking a couple thousand people and 400 brands versus- But it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. It's a it's a nightmare of a long night. Um, but those tickets on November 18th, we found a loophole, speaking of questioning things, that you can have vintage bottles. And in Texas, you, Kentucky, you guys have that law that you guys- We, we have, do have a, yeah, some some of a pseudo gray area law, but yeah. So we we also have a, a gray area that no one else was utilizing. And so we, we bring in a lot of vintage bottles from the old early 1900s to current. And uh, it's, a, it's a great event. So HoustonWhiskeySocial.com. The show's on hiatus, so I'll plug another show. Check out Bourbon Real Talk with my, my partner, Randy Sullivan. He's got a, a great show. And I think I think he recently invited Mark Brown on. Nice. They may have they may have passed. We'll, I don't know. Yeah. we'll see. And then yeah, I think oh, prideful goat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, seal box. Yeah, absolutely. So I, that's pretty much it. I appreciate it. I've had fun, man. This has been great. So make sure you follow Chris on everything he's doing. Also follow Bourbon Pursuit on all the socials. And so we've been talking about our whiskey pursuitspirits.com as well. But with that, cheers, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>